I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, how are you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here. Listen to this. I'm still crunching through snow and it is really bitter out here tonight. I would normally be out walking the fields here in East Anglia with my dog friend Rosie, as you know. But dog is not well at the moment. For the last week, she's been off her food and just very melancholy, or to be more accurate, melon whippet poodle. What? And uh, anyway, she, uh, she's feeling sorry for herself, poor old dog. She's been to the vet a few times and the vet says, well, there's nothing serious wrong. It might possibly be a reaction to some pills she took and I don't know. But yeah, it's been a bit depressing having the emotional anchor of Castle Buckles laid low. Anyway, we're having more tests done. I'll let you know how she does as soon as I can. On the upside for Rosie, the fact that we've been fussing over her a little bit more than usual has meant that she's been allowed to sleep in our bedroom with me and my wife. Last night I woke up to find her licking my face and panting above me. It was quite alarming. Rosie was still fast asleep. <laughs> I was talking about my wife, not Rosie. All right, now let me tell you a bit about podcast number 148, which features a rambling conversation with Canadian comic Tony Law. Tony Facts. Tony grew up on a farm in Alberta, Western Canada, between the foothills of the Rocky Mountains to the west and the flatter Alberta prairie to the east. He moved to the UK as a 19-year-old at the end of the 80s to pursue his comedy dreams. In 1995, Tony won the New Act competition at that year's Glastonbury Festival. And by the start of the new millennium, he was becoming an established face on the London comedy circuit. With shows that were characterised by, and I'm paraphrasing from Wikipedia now, his highly surreal material and delivery, as well as his eclectic historical style of dress, favouring boots with turned-up jeans. That's historical dress. And a Viking-slash-explorer style of hair. Many of his stand-up routines are ad-libbed and often built around fictional and surreal situations. I first met Tony in the mid-2000s when he was one of a group of comedians who would regularly perform shows together at the old Ealing Studios in West London. Soon after, in 2005-2006, I started a comedy club night 
at the Zeta Hotel in Clerkenwell, and I would show some of the videos that I was posting on my YouTube channel in those days and try out other bits and pieces of character comedy and my character Pavel and my character Famous Guy. And I would invite other comedian friends to come along and do bits and pieces too. And recently, when I was going through my videotape archives, I found a recording from one of those club nights from 2006 that included a set from Tony, in which at one point he read out a letter that he'd written to the people of the future. Dear stupid people of the future! In which he he was taunting them about having to live with the effects of man-made climate change. And I was reminded that it is really a brilliant and very funny, albeit grimly funny, satire of climate change denial and complacency, but it's just an excellent bit as an idea and the way it's executed. And with Tony's permission, I uploaded it to my YouTube channel today, if you want to see it. Link in the description. In 2012, Tony's live show, Maximum Nonsense, was nominated for the Best Comedy Show Award at the Edinburgh Festival that year. And thereafter, a string of awards for his live shows followed, in addition to his appearances on TV shows like Have I Got News For You, Never Mind The Buzzcocks, 8 Out Of 10 Cats Does Countdown, and Stuart Lee's Comedy Vehicle. Since the start of COVID times, Tony has been broadcasting regularly on Twitch, a streaming platform that a lot of comedians have been using to fool around and try out bits and pieces while comedy clubs remain closed. It's like live YouTube. For a while, Tony would be joined virtually by fellow comedian Phil Nickel for improvised streams of nonsense on Twitch, crudely green-screened over random images and GoPro-style footage. But recently, Tony has been hosting the show solo and rebranded as The Tone Zone. It was called Virtue Chamber Echo Bravo before. Now it's the Tone Zone. So that's just Tony with more of the same sort of improvised stream of consciousness stuff, but with the odd guest as well. I'm hoping to enter the Tone Zone myself at some point. Whoa, listen to the crunch on this snow. sell that to a sound effects library. My conversation with Tony that you're about to hear was recorded remotely a few days before his 51st birthday in September of last year, 2020. And it was very good to see Tony again. Hadn't seen him for a while. Talking to me from the recording booth that he has made himself inside a cramped cupboard in the North London flat where he lives with his wife Storm, their children and their dog Wolfie. The recording booth cupboard is where Tony also broadcasts his shows for Twitch and, as you will hear, records the odd audiobook. There doesn't seem to be a great deal of room for manoeuvre in the cupboard, so every now and again you can hear, in our conversation, Tony accidentally bumping his mic stand, as well as the occasional sound of his children in the background and Wolfie the dog. Despite frequent flashes of the silly, absurd version of Tony that fans of his comedy will be familiar with, he was also up for sharing a more thoughtful 
self-deprecating side. And we talked about a lot of stuff that I'd never really spoken to him about before, including his upbringing on the farm in Western Canada, his formative comedy and other cultural influences, and good times and bad times with alcohol and the process of transitioning into a life of sobriety, which he did back in 2015. We also talked about the phase that I was going through last September of being immersed in the strange world of Charlie Kaufman, the American writer-director, via his novel Ant Kind, and in particular his film Synecdoche, New York, which he wrote and directed, which in the wake of my mum's death last June and a lot of rumination about mortality was taking up a lot more emotional and philosophical real estate than was probably healthy. Sorry, this is a long intro. Back at the end with a couple of recommendations for you. But right now, let's head into the tone zone. Here we go. Hey. <laughs> How's it going? Good, man. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. I'm in my uh, I'm in my closet studio. Yeah, you are. <laughs> I love it in here. I did a, an audio book, 20,000 Leagues Below the Sea, and I was I loved it so much. I thought this is going to go good and this is going to be what I do now. And uh, didn't hear back so much. <laughs> yeah. uh, I tried to, I wanted to make it kind of surreal. And you spend most of the book describing sort of how they described nature in the 1900s. Like loads of the words have changed now. Mm-hmm. You couldn't even find how to pronounce some of them. The boctilioxis uh, and all of that. But I wanted to make it like, um, I did that kind of comedy voice that we do. I did that voice right there uh-huh. throughout the book. And I thought, well, that'll add a bit of that. Presumably that's why they got me, you know, <laughs> and I'll make it a bit silly. And I made Ahab, I made him northern, you know. <laughs> and uh, I remember talking to the... <laughs> did you really? T- yeah. And I was... T- <laughs> I thought, well, this is the sort of stuff they're after from the tone zone. That's why they got me in. <laughs> and uh, and I was talking to Morris in the, my tech guy slash direct producer <laughs> and he went yeah i think so and i did such a good job explaining why i thought that was cool yeah. that he just went yeah that's awesome Sounds i think that's good. great that's probably why they got it. but then, <laughs> then it dawned on us after we'd recorded for about 18 or 20 hours he went hang on is there anywhere in the book where we find out where he's from because <laughs> imagine if he's, he's literally from the south of France. But no, we don't find out. And I have a backstory for him and all that. You know, <laughs> it's a surreal, plodding, stodgy book. So you got to play, you got to make it somehow fun. It's really dull. Is it? 
Yeah, it's quite a dull book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was happy to have it. I'll read anything. Did you used to read Jules Verne when you were little? Um, no. Uh, I just remember the film, actually. Yeah, the Disney one. Yeah, and the, and the ride. I remember going on the ride. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In Disneyland was... in California yeah. or Florida? Uh, we went to the Florida one. Yeah, man. Yeah. That was incredible. Mm. We took the kids to Euro Disney a few years ago, and they sort of replicate all those rides, and it's, it's so dated. Yeah. Nostalgia fuels us, but the kids are looking around going, this is all shit, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Did you like Disneyland? How old were you when you first went to Disneyland, when you went on that 20,000 Leagues ride? Uh, eight. Oh, perfect, perfect. Mm. So did it seem amazing and magical to you, the whole place? Yeah, it seemed pretty, everything was amazing, yeah. And I wasn't old enough to go on Space Mountain yet. Oh, yeah. That left me thinking, wow, there's more? We're farm people. I grew up on a farm, so it was the first time I ever got lost from my parents. I, I hadn't seen them for hours, but I didn't care, because, you know, I was eight. I was, like, having a great time. But I'd lost them for a couple hours, and it was dark, so I just took myself off to the Hall of Presidents and just <laughs> and sat in there. And that's where my brother found me. He said, oh, I figured you'd be in here. What was it like? Me and my sister used to... I should say that we were lucky enough to go to Disneyland many times when we were young because my dad was a travel journalist and he loved America and um, he would take us to the States with him and we would always end our trips around the States by going to California, which was where my aunt and mm. uncle lived. And so we'd go to Disneyland and it was just, we absolutely loved it. It was like being in a film. You know, this was in, in the 70s when life in the UK was just impenetrably gray and boring and <laughs> everything shut down on Sundays and it was just so turgid and dull and as far as I was concerned the most wonderful thing you could be was American I mean for, for a young person listening now they might think like what but oh yeah back in those days back in those English days, people loved America America was just great and Americans were so cool and funny <laughs> and and it was like permanent sunshine and the way they spoke was so it was like being in a movie, you know. And so me and my sister were obsessed with Disneyland and we had a poster, a big map of the whole park. And we put it up on our bedroom wall at home and we'd go through and we would study each ride. They were all numbered and mm. listed at the bottom of the poster. And we'd tick all the ones that we'd been on and uh -huh. we'd circle the ones that we wanted to go on. But the one that we never, ever even thought about looking at was the hall of presidents what was the hall of presidents <laughs> really? yeah that, that's how they get out their propaganda i guess you, you go sit in there and a, one president animatronic president gets <laughs> an animatronic president gets up and he does one of the speeches he's famous for and then another one gets up it's all capped off with uh, a rousing speech from uh, abe lincoln okay for score, but they they didn't go with the Daniel Day Lewis. You know, he made him real high pitched. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> but it, no, they went with the deep one for score, and yeah, I just loved all that. I was into history back then. Uh -huh. I used to watch cartoons before school. It was probably the same in England. We had two channels, and every morning at about six a.m., Professor Kitzel came on. That was about time travel, and then the next cartoon um, was Max, the two thousand year old mouse. So that just hooked me in right from early doors it sounds like we're just had... making up 
TV shows. <laughs> yeah. and, we had, and we had no books in our house, like none, except for we had the 1967 Encyclopedia Britannica uh-huh. collection, A through Z. We had them all. We even had some extras on there. So I used to pull those out because I like the smell of them. And I'd get them out, smell them for a while, and then just dive in. So I have a pretty good knowledge of history right up to 1967 that I've carried <laughs> with me. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've changed a few views since then. But yeah, so that was what I was into. And then when I went to the Hall of Presidents, that was my kind of place. As my brother finally clicked. Oh, yeah. He'll be in there doing all the talking book stuff. Or, no, that's, that's uncharitable. Is that my your brother. older brother? Yeah, that's second oldest. That was Blaine. Okay. My, brothers are, my brothers are Brett and Blaine. <laughs> yeah, and my little sister is Rebecca. Oh. Brett, Blaine, Becky. And, and Tony. And Tony. <laughs> or Hollywood, as my brother used to call me. <laughs> Did any of them become performers? No, not at all. So my brother, he took over the farm. He's a farmer. I know you didn't really ask what my whole family did, and I've just gone straight into it. No, I was going to. I've always wanted to know about, like... You and I have known each other a long time. I know, but we always end up having stupid conversations, and I just wanted to... I mean, stupid and enjoyable, but I... We do banter. Exactly. But I've always wanted to know what your childhood was like and where you grew up, and because you refer to it obliquely now and then, and it always seems very romantic and... Yeah, I romanticize. I mean, I was very lucky to grow up you know, on a farm, but we, we had to work a lot. They put you to work. So, so I did like physical labor and this isn't complaining. I used to complain about it, but, you know, so we used to have to do hard work from the age of eight, you know, feeding pigs and feeding cattle and castrating pigs and hauling grain and picking rocks, all that stuff, which I hated. Yeah, man. And the only thing it's ever done is it's just knocked the whole work ethic out of me, just destroyed (laughs) it. (laughs) I worked so hard as a child. I just thought, it's not for me, this. I quite fear physical labor now. Right. You know, that's why I prefer to go on stage, do some talking, read an audio book. I could do that 30 hours a day. This is out in rural Alberta, you said, in Canada. Alberta, yeah. So after school, all the family chats are always like, every brother thinks the other brother had it easy. Oh, you didn't, uh, you know, because everyone's view is, (laughs) oh, Tony. Because I I had long hair once when I was young. Uh, What was I, about 18, 20, something like that. I had long hair. And my brother said, oh, Fabio. He used to call me Fabio. (laughs) <laughs> Fabio is so tired. Are you tired, Fabio? Fabio needs to go lie down. He's so tired from being in Hollywood. That's my brother's fist. Even now, and I'm 50 years old, and I'll take my wife and my two 10-year-old kids, and we'll go visit my brother, and he'll go, Hollywood. He's so tired. <laughs> 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 Yeah, Hollywood doesn't like to go do the work. He's too tired. He has modeling in the morning. (laughs) Fabio was... um, (laughs) I I referred to Fabio the other day and was met with a blank stare because (laughs) he was a big deal, wasn't he? Remind us who Fabio was when we were growing up. I don't remember him very much, purposely, but he was—he was a model. Yeah. Oh, I think he modeled with kittens or something, or puppies <laughs> or something. He did—he did some sort of famous 
ad campaign, back when ad campaigns were fueled by cocaine and the Scott brothers. Yeah. It was probably a Ridley Scott campaign where he was lying under a lion or something. And he was a square-jawed, blonde, sort of European Yes, well, he himself was very leonine and had, as you say, big square jaw and long golden locks and was absolutely buff. His name was Fabio Mm. Lanzoni. I'm now looking at Wikipedia. Oh, so he was an Italian bloke. Yeah, Italian-American, actor, fashion model and spokesman, although it doesn't say for (laughs) what. Uh, I think I'm right in saying used to appear on the cover of a lot of romantic fiction. Oh, yeah. And I think people would use him as the basis for these paintings of men with rippling muscles, with shirts either wide open or falling off, and and hair cascading over their shoulders and, you know, women yep. swooning in their arms. Black and white photos. Yeah, back when sexuality and things like that were... More straightforward. We were, uh, you know, <laughs> just trying to figure it out yeah. <laughs> at that time. <laughs> Do you have fond memories of your childhood and your adolescence in Canada? Yeah, I think so. I think I was pretty... That's all I knew, so yeah. But, I, you know, I couldn't wait to get out of there, too, because it's a very uh, conservative-y place. There was no idea of university or anything like that. So, like, all of that part of the world I'd learnt after I'd already left. So you were either going to be another farmer. So I worked at uh, Fletcher's Fine Foods at the abattoir. I I was working there. And that was horrible. I didn't like butchering hogs. And then I... Oh, were you actually... Were you in charge of the execution devices? Well, no. But I I was... No, I was down the line from that. Okay. But I used to go down and, uh, and see the guy on the killing floor. I don't think they allow that nowadays, but this dude, back then, that was all he did. Now I think you, they rotate the guy who does the killing. <laughs> he had been working there 17 years, killing up to 3,000 pigs a day. Oh, man. Yeah, that's got to do something to your psychology, isn't it? You would think. Anyway, you get the idea. So if you're not going to go on to be a f- another farmer, or you know, you've got something you really need to do, there's nothing. And you only start realizing that when you get to 16 or 17. And then you don't really know what it is because you don't know what there is. <laughs> it's like, and there's no internet to go, oh, fuck, did you see what they're doing over there? But um, yeah, so, and the history was what kind of got me to look around. So I thought I'm going to go over to the UK and I'm going to see some actual history. Go look at some actual old stuff. I had no interest in going to, like, the east coast of North America. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go over to Europe, man. Right. Yeah, so, and that's why I came over. Was it as simple as you having been inspired by your Encyclopedia Britannica? Or was it something you'd seen on TV or in a movie or... No, I think I was thinking it was, it was the cartoons. Oh, do you know what? Well, I forgot a really significant episode was at 15 when the Landmark Girls... Had a big party. So sometimes someone on their farm would have a party and um, the house would be off limits to everyone and they'd make all the kids go out in the pasture or wherever. And they had a huge party with loads of kids over. And I was, um, you know, the usual awkward kind of... And I, I wasn't sure about alcohol yet. Mm-hmm. I was 15 and then I... But you could go into the house if you needed just to 
have some quiet time or whatever there and they go we got a movie on for you kids over in in the den you know you go in there and you can have some coke and some chips and you can watch a movie so i went in there and there's only like two other kids it was the holy grail was on and oh. i'd never seen it before it was 15 i made it to and i watched it all the way through with my mouth just wide open because i just thought holy shit and i was always like funny class clowny you know loved comedy between us but i'd never seen anything like that and there there it was it was history and it was comedy and it was like couldn't even like it really did fundamentally change me so we watched it right straight away again and the second time i watched it i laughed like i've never laughed that hard since it was so hard and it was so deep it was like a howl i can't over emphasize how it touched me it was like thunder i couldn't believe it you know the night when the knights are on top of the castle and all that i was crying and and begging them to pause it and you know the other kids in there were loving it too but they kept looking over at me yeah. <laughs> it was just i'd never seen anything like it and that just confirmed everything i needed to know it's like i couldn't believe it so funny yeah so you thought i'm gonna go to where they made this yes i I had that anglophile thing of british music you know right what were you listening to you know listening to old stuff so stuff at least 15 years behind me all the english stuff it had to be english so i started off with the stones and then i moved my way up through the kinks and then I had a Led Zeppelin phase where I saw I listened to was Led Zeppelin. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then The Who was what really took me. I'm one of these uh, morons where if I get obsessed with one thing, it has to be just that one thing. So I only listened to The Who for about a year. That's it. Uh-huh. I wouldn't talk about anything else. It was just The Who. And then I wanted to make myself cultured. I didn't know how you'd do that. But I figured if I listened to Mozart enough, something would change in me so and then i saw amadeus and that blew me away so i i listened to nothing but mozart for six solid months and even today i can pretty much recognize anything by mozart wherever i am at when it comes on so i don't know a single thing about anything else any other classical music but i know mozart so I'm a Mozart guy, a Who guy and a Monty Python guy what's what's your go-to Mozart then uh, I would say That sounds like the theme to a daytime TV quiz. Yeah, it's it's like on the opening bars of the film where um Amadeus and Solieri's falls he's cut his throat. Okay. I really fell in love with pastries in that movie. <laughs> they were bringing lovely pastries. This one's called Nipples of Venus. It's very naughty. <laughs> yeah, it's very beautiful. All those scenes and all the costumes and the art design. Mm. And um, it's it's wonderful. Oh, I went to Prague was one of the first places I went to oh, early doors. And that was, whew, yeah, that's where it's all filmed, isn't it? Isn't it? Right. I've never been mm. to Prague. I'd love to go. But I watched the movie the other day with my daughter because I thought, well, she's precociously intelligent, if I say so myself. She loves reading mm-hmm. books and she's fairly open-minded. So I said, let's watch uh, Amadeus. How I old is she? She is 11. She's going to be 12 uh, next month. But oh. um, Lynn manuel Miranda is her guy. You know, she loves um, Hamilton. 
and okay. all those kinds of things. But I thought, well, if she likes that, then maybe she'll be impressed in a similar way by Amadeus and the spectacle of it and the costumes and everything. And and I had a residual、mm. memory of it being terrific, you know. And it is good, but it's very long. Every scene, the delivery of each line, and the pace of the editing is so much slower in any movie like pre two thousand. So she、yeah. was fidgeting a little bit, but she made it right the way through. I just checked、oh, on Google. Bless her. That is that is hardcore. If she did that, man. It is three hours, and oh, and, it is okay. And I forgot the last hour is pretty much all Obama. Like it's his gradual <laughs> slide into、uh, disease and death and humiliation. You know, it just feels like two hour forty to me. Yeah, because I like it、along. so much. But yeah, it's three. Yeah, it's,、uh, <laughs> it's yeah. three if you're watching with an eleven year old. I'm on a Charlie Kaufman jag at the moment because、mm. I'm reading his debut novel called Ant Kind. I'm actually listening to the audio book, and it's you know twenty five hours long or something. He's also got a film out called "I'm Thinking of Ending It" on Netflix. Oh, hello, fact-checking Santa here. The film is actually called "I'm Thinking of Ending Things." Oh my! And it's an adaptation of a horror novel, I think. But do you like Charlie Kaufman stuff? Like, basically, listening to the book and thinking about him more reminded me of how much I liked being John Malkovich. And how much I disliked Synecdoche, New York, and I went back and I and I started gingerly kind of reading around the film and looking at analyses of that film on YouTube、uh, because it's a very odd, surreal, absurdist piece of work. Yeah, I don't remember it. Oh man, Philip Seymour Hoffman is a theatre director. Apologies if I'm getting this wrong. This is just from vague、mm. memory. I haven't seen it since it came out. I think it came out around twen two thousand and six or thereabouts. Two thousand and eight, actually. <laughs> and he's a theatre director. He's in an unhappy marriage to a character played by Catherine Keener, and he's obsessed with his health. He's a hypochondriac. He's very depressive. He becomes obsessed with the idea of. Authenticity in his art, and he decides that the only way that he can express the reality of life and the and the horror of being locked into this path to death is to create a version of his own life and the city of New York in a huge hangar that he hires, like on the suburbs of of New York, and so they build this replica of all the buildings. That he associates with his life, and he hires actors to play everybody in his own life, and an actor to play him, and so it's all kind of crazy and meta and mind bending,、yeah. and and time is elastic, and weird things are happening in the background, and you know, a woman goes to look around a house that she wants to buy. And her and the real estate agent are wandering around, ignoring the fact that there is a fire in the corner of the house. It's just burning, and there's smoke <laughs> billowing around. But th- they're not mentioning it. She's just sort of going, and over here is the、uh, is the sitting room, and it's nice. There's the window facing out there. You can see you've got a lot of room here, and you can decorate how you want. And meanwhile, there's a fire in the corner. Is there something about the fire? Yeah. So they don't、oh, mention、yeah. the fire, and it's all an allegory for how that's what life is, according to. 
Charlie Kaufman, or at least according to the Philip Seymour Hoffman character. You know, you might buy a house and that's probably the house you're going to die in. You know what I mean? Like、mm. all the evidence of the end of your life and all the factors that will contribute to the end of your life are probably already with you one way or another. But the、mm. business of life is to ignore them all and to distract yourself from、mm-hmm. them, either、mm-hmm. by watching movies or whatever it is. And some people have the type of personality which enables them to keep distracting themselves and enjoy themselves and not dwell on the、yeah. inevitable.、Um, but other people, like the Philip Seymour Hoffman character, can't help themselves. They end up.、Yeah. Obsessing about it and dwelling on it and making art about it, and it, it, it overtakes them. And then suddenly, before they know it, their time has run out, and, and that's it.、Mm. And、uh, so it's really unsettling, especially for someone at my stage in life. <laughs> well, I think I've spent far too much time not thinking about life at all.、Uh-huh. Maybe、uh, scared that I might start obsessing about it. Yeah, I, yeah, at this age is a funny old age. Yeah, man. It's because my kids are getting older, so they're eleven now, twins, and and it's just thinking, and I haven't amounted to anything. It's not that, it's like I haven't given them an example of, you know, it's all of that. You just worry about like five years ago. I just thought, you know, I'm doing what I'm doing. If this works, it works. If it pays off, it pays off. You know, we're getting by, we're paying the bills, like, and didn't care about, you know, status. You know, I'm doing my gigs, and it's only like when、I, when they go to other kids' houses, <laughs> especially primary school in in Islington. It's like there's loads of middle class people who have their kids in state school, but as soon as it gets to secondary, they're gone. You don't see them again because they've saved up <laughs> or whatever, and so. And then when you go, in, my son's now in this state school around the corner, and.、Uh, So, so it's different now. Now it's just us. So in in one way, now at state school and meeting the other parents and just saying, "Oh, well, we're all this is great. This is where we belong." Do you know what I mean?、Mm-hmm. Whereas before, there was always so much like, "Oh God, they're going to that house and they're gonna they're gonna think," but they don't. They genuinely don't care. They know they live in a tiny flat. I mean, I'm sure at some point they'll go. God, we grew up. In a small flat, but when they're little, they it's cool because every、uh, their friends think it's really neat because it's central.、Um, but you can't help yourself. So all the things I probably should have spent my whole life thinking about have just come on in the last few years. And also, like I stopped drinking four years ago, so that's another thing. This is the first time I've done any like actual thinking. <laughs> and so yeah, and then you hit fifty, and、uh, and so cynic dokey. And death、yeah. is all—it's here, isn't it? And then all of our, then people that shouldn't be dead are dead.、Yes. All of that, yeah, man. Is a, yeah,、um, started with Bowie, didn't it? It did. <laughs> it did. Yeah, my dad popped off a few weeks before Jamesy, so I had a preview in a way, and then then it all started biting. That sense of uh, uh, some sort、mm. of midlife crisis. Not just for me, but for the rest of the world, it seemed. But it、um, like, yeah. I forgive me if this sounds hokey and insincere, but it, I don't mean it to be. But the thing your children will remember is not your status. They'll remember their relationship with you and and how they felt about you and how you felt about them. Oh yeah, yeah, and I know that, but it doesn't stop you from thinking, God, I'm a loser. 
I think probably everyone thinks they're a loser, but sometimes it's you feel like more of one than than normal. What is it that makes you feel like a loser in those moments? I don't know. Just is it just comparing yourself to other people? For me, it's it's award poverty, season. Poverty, I think. <laughs> what were you saying? It's what I, I I was giving a glib answer while you were giving a. Uh, uh, did you say award season? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, back when I used to watch TV, it used to be like anyone I didn't rate who was on TV, that used to that used to trigger me. But then I turned a corner and I thought, God, I'm turning into a really good guy because I started feeling like, oh, good for them. They really deserve that. I, yeah, I can see why. You know, I think they're great. Then I thought, yeah, I'm awesome. No. So so, so it was, um, I don't know, just uh, stuff, you know, should be doing better. You said poverty, and presumably you meant like... When you struggle. Yeah. yeah. Like everyone, you know, you struggle for rent and, and uh, struggle to get by. And that's mainly COVID's brought that home, you know, because you're a comedian, you can't work. So there's no live gigs. That's my main thing. Mm-hmm. And then I got... I don't want to turn it into a wine fest. I'm just... Everyone goes through it, and everyone's having the same thing. And you, you ignore that and you, you're pretty buoyant and everything's pretty cool. It's just every once in a while when your kid looks at you, they're probably looking at you just tired. But if you're weak like me, you allow your to go, oh, I wish I could be more for you. And, you know, you catch yourself in time and remind yourself it's about the relationships. And that's such a relief. So what I can give him is I can go to school with him every morning. And even if he's wants me to sit behind him he still likes me to come so i can sit on the bus and you know be all cool like we don't know each other sometimes <laughs> so, that, so that those are things you'll remember forever um yeah so i started out whining and then i think i pulled it back by being <laughs> grateful i think so every morning every day i like to cook myself an egg I like to boil the egg or scramble the egg Or maybe poach the egg But then I read a website on eggs It said that I was eating babies Oh no I felt so bad when I looked at the egg But when I ate the egg it was still nice Um, I can't leave this YouTube comment hanging because it's... Well, you can tell me whether you think this is useful, uh, a useful bit of philosophy from a YouTuber. This is a comment from someone called JJ. And as I said, I, I saw this beneath an analysis of the film Synecdoche, New York. And I'll post okay. a link to this video in the description of this podcast if you're interested. But mm. JJ says... And there's lots of people in the comments sort of talking about the film and saying how much they love it but most people agree it's quite a bummer like it's it's a massive it's pretty depressing really it's a fairly bleak analysis of of what it is to be human uh not everyone thinks that anyway but jj says my personal philosophy of life is evolving as i grow but i think my purpose is to develop meaningful relationships with kind people gain mastery over something so i can contribute to the world actually i should say because maybe people because i'm reading out this youtube comment they might think that this is a ridiculous or funny comment this is not like a ridiculous comment i'm reading this sort of sincerely because oh, i'm really waiting for someone to go fucking idiot no or something. <laughs> no this is just a nice comment okay right? yeah 
And he says, my personal philosophy of life is evolving as I grow, but I think my purpose is to develop meaningful relationships with kind people, gain mastery over something so I can contribute to the world, regulate negative emotions, and intentionally try to cultivate positive emotions, and try to be present and appreciative of the finite existence I have. It's important to embrace the melancholy of how sometimes life doesn't make sense. And, once those feelings are felt, attempting to find a positive spin to the meaning of things, whether it's celebrating beauty or the joy of human connection. And I just thought, yeah, wow. man, that's the He's best really, YouTube comment I've read. <laughs> that's amazing. He's really ticked all the boxes there. Yeah. He sussed it. Maybe he copied that's all it the, out That's of all the stuff you should want to try and do and be. Yeah. I mean, actually being able to do those things is another story. But That's good enough to cut out and put on my screen <laughs> <laughs> and have a little look at it. Because I like how it's, it's, it's written in my kind of language. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, you don't nice. see that every day. Certainly not on YouTube. You have seen them all, haven't you? I'm, I'm still not tough enough, not strong enough to look at comments. You know, I, I walk around with my eyes kind of just squinting, just not really checking my peripheral vision too, too much. Don't want to see what's going on over there too much, you know? But comments about you, you mean? Yeah, me and also something I really like. Yeah. I don't necessarily want to... No, I generally avoid stuff that's about me... You know, I, I don't mind reading stuff if it's funny or if I'm going to be able to use it in a show or something like that. But I don't seek out reviews and things like that. I, I generally avoid those things. Uh, someone on our stream the other day came on and started watching it and said, these guys are dickheads. And even that made me think, oh, God. But actually, I thought about it today. And I, yeah, we are, actually. So they've <laughs> nailed it. That, that could have been positive. These guys are dickheads. Yeah. You know, as far as dickheads goes, these guys are it. That's oh, good. It's such a shame that that's the base level of interaction, that people just always feel compelled. Oh, I mean, and that's gentle in in this yeah, world, isn't it? of course it, it is. It's pretty I know. savage it's out like there. It's like a walk in the park. Yeah. You didn't get a death threat. No one threatened to <laughs> kill your family or anything like yeah. that. You got off light. You think to yourself, God, I will. I'm going to go out and find that guy and we'll, we'll deal with that. We'll see how they... And then it's, it, it'll be just like a guy, you know, with... It'll be an 11-year-old. In a wheelchair. Or, <laughs> yeah. It'll be someone having a tough, tough old time. Right. There you go. Exactly. It's either an 11-year-old who's bored or, as you say, it's someone who's kind of unable to leave the house and... Yeah. Had a really tough time of it. Yeah. Yeah. The internet. Wow. Do you ever pine for pre-internet days? I mean, there's no point. You'd be insane if you did. But do you ever think back <laughs> and think about how different things were and how it feels like, wow, things were a lot simpler? I change all the time, actually. Sometimes I think, God, I feel lucky to have been from those times. <laughs> yeah. From the olden times. I feel like it gives us an insight onto things. But then, you know, you meet people who are like, not really affected by it all that much. You know, those those people, they, they're rare, aren't they? But there's these incredible people who are, like, busy. They go from cello to the woods on the weekend. And, you know, I know some people like this, and they're good, good people. They're kind, connected people. They're so kind and nice. I feel intimidated around them, but I know that I need to be around good people. Are these people who are younger than you? Are you talking about a younger generation? Well, no, the whole family, right from mum and dad right down. So the okay. kids are friends with their child. 
And so they, they invited us to go with them to the woods. And, and before we went, I was thinking, I hope they don't find out I'm an asshole because I can be a prick and I'm rude and I go... Si-. Like, I've still got loads of, of farmer in me, like, you know, just quite happy to not talk or, or, you know, like, or just go quiet or be grumpy or be on edge or, you know, I just got loads of back-ass backwardness to me, so... But when you're with these good, kind people, is that goes away. Because mm-hmm. you're just kind of going, you're like your best 17-year-old self. Or whenever life was pretty good, you're like that. And you're just like, do you guys want to go and fire some arrows off? Yeah, and you've got lots of energy and things like that. I know that's true, isn't it? I was thinking about that the other day, that I've just been at home, really, since March. And mm. so even though I am frequently, uh, my spirits are frequently lifted by members of my family mm. at the same time there are a lot of moments where i just am so overwhelmed by the predictability of the routine that um you know i, I just forget to cheer up and be grateful <laughs> i've quite liked that everybody else has been in that's my favorite part of the lockdown mm-hmm. is that everybody was in because there for a while there for a while i was spending too much time on my own so i'd go and do my gigs come back then in the daytime, I'd take the dog to the woods, spending most of my time in the woods, and then a couple hours with the kids at bedtime. And now I think everybody's spent an awful lot of time on their own and yeah. in. <laughs> and it, it's, it's, a, it's an attractive life, isn't it, to switch off? Well, it is. on the one hand, it is nice to keep things simple and to spend time with your family. But obviously... On the other hand, it is hard to... Um, I'm just going to trot out another cliche about the whole pandemic oh, like, situation that really I doesn't like, oh, need repeating. Come but, on, fire it out. I want to hear it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Give, give us... Uh, what, what, do you, what do you got to say about the... Uh, well, on the one hand, the, uh, yeah. you know, you're spending much more time with your family. You're keeping things simple, reminding yourself yep. of what's really important, stripping away yep. a lot of the distraction and the pointless competition and the yep. anxiety over status, indeed, uh, yeah, that indeed, uh, characterizes actually, yeah. so much of the modern mm. world. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, there is a real anxiety underlying all of this. There's a pandemic that is affecting millions of people in all sorts of terrible ways. It's not going well. I'm saying this in a silly voice as if I am minimizing I love that voice. Not. It's, just that, um, it's just that, obviously, you know, that's a point of view that has been expressed before. That's my second favorite of your voices. <laughs> What's the best voice? The, over there. Oh, you know, yeah. Well, that guy, he was uh, inspired <laughs> by you. That was... Uh, I know. I know. That's what I tell people. That's my, that's my big claim. I was going, oh, you like Adam Buxton and his podcast. You know, one of his voices is me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I did a... To explain to the listeners, I did a character called Famous Guy. And he was... And it was uh, inspired by watching... Uh, Russell Crowe doing interviews and uh, talking about his band, 30-odd foot of grunts. And, <laughs> and he would get very upset if people didn't take the project seriously because it would be like, it's not just me and this band. There's four guys in 30-odd foot of grunts and they're all equally important. <laughs> yeah. And then he would say, my character would say... He just, it was all about like how much he'd been paid. I'm doing a new movie. It's out next week. 
and I got paid ten million dollars and a million dollars. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I love that you did that great little thing where you'd click your fingers and then. Oh yeah, that's right. You try and get my energy. There. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It was a lot of very, you know, pointing, you know, and looking at people <laughs> in the audience and going, "What about that? I'm important. What? Do you understand it?" And uh, that's Do right. Do you understand it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I love that guy. That was fun, man. And that was entirely because I started hanging out with you and some of the other people from uh, Ealing Live. Yeah, Ealing Live. And remember, Miranda was there. Miranda Hart. Yeah, she was. She was one of the guys. Was she? Yeah. So this was in two thousand and four or something that I think I met you. Yeah, yeah. Miranda was... Because I did it 2003, 2004. So uh-huh. she was on one of those years. Maybe it was 2003. But I remember, yeah, everyone was so good. Katie Brand, was. were you there when Katie Brand was there? Yeah, it was Katie Brand and uh, James Backman, who went off to do a lot of stuff with uh, Mitchell and Webb and then went off to America. Yeah. And uh, Lucy Montgomery and... Uh, Alice Lowe. Oh, yeah, Alice and... Um, Steve Oram and Tom Meaton. Oram and Meaton, yeah. Gareth Tunley. And the big tall guy. He's married to Lucy Porter. Oh, yes. Justin Edwards. <laughs> Justin Edwards, when he, he dressed up like... Uh, the so, so Katie Brand would come out as Charlotte Church and go, <laughs> fuck you, is it David? Fuck you, David, I'm the voice of an angel. And so he was... That original voice of an angel. What's he called? Oh, uh, um, yes, I'm walking the in the air. That guy. Yeah, that one. And he, he looked just crazy because he's so big and he had the hair done. <laughs> what was his name? I, I've forgotten. Uh, Alec uh, Jones. Alec Jones. I'm the voice of an angel now, Alec Jones. Oh, right. You so, go away, Charlotte Church. <laughs> but, but in Welsh accents. <laughs> that was a funny sketch. And then Katie Brown used to do lots of famous people, didn't she? And she would do Kate Winslet going on about yes. how ordinary she was and how much like everybody else she was. Yeah. And she would come out with wellies on and a skirt. She would have the back <laughs> of her skirt tucked into her pants and there'd be shit all over her pants. <laughs> yeah. She was really good. <laughs> that was so fun. I loved doing that. That was so great. Yeah, and it was fun. That's where I met you. And I remember talking to you before a show because i kind of decided at that point that i needed to do some live stuff because me and joe weren't really working together all that much on tv and i thought shit i've got to reinvent myself joe was off doing his film stuff with edgar and i thought well maybe i can try doing some live stand-up because i'd never done it before and that felt like, oh, you know, you're not really a proper comedian unless you've paid your dues on the live circuit. But there was no way I was going to get up and tell jokes oh, with right. yeah, just yeah. a microphone. So I, I thought, well, maybe I can do characters. So um, I ended up being able to, to hang around with you guys a little bit. And uh, it was really fun. Oh, we had to laugh. My favorite thing that I'm trying to do, and I always it's a, such a fine balance, is I like... I'm really interested in the idea of someone who is, is like a failure. Like, so when you go to a gig, someone who's like, who's not made it is interesting to me. Mm-hmm. When I do a gig in Newcastle and my small amount of fans come and you do a joke about how you fucked this up and you did that, people really dig that. But it's such a fine line before feeling sorry for yourself or whining. But there is, if you can get it right, you can show... Some stupid decisions, because we all make so many 
stupid decisions. You know, like you can go watch uh, Russell Howard and that's, that'd be great, I'm sure. But Russell Howard's like sharp on it, makes good choices. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, that's not my sort of thing. If I go to a gig, I want to see someone and going, you know, this was right in front of me and then I did this. And you're going, oh, you fucking idiot. Holy shit, I love it. <laughs> now I feel so much better about how much of a tool I am. That's that's the nirvana. That's the sweet spot. Yeah, man. That's exactly that right. I was talking to someone else about this recently because I had a book out earlier this year and um, I got quite a few messages from people. And one of the messages I got was sort of telling me off for being down on myself, you know, for, for telling stories about times that I'd fucked up on panel shows or whatever. And mm. they were saying, listen, man, you've got nothing to complain about. Get over yourself. You know, oh. you should be more positive. And they were trying, they were saying it in a nice way and an encouraging oh, right. way. But that's I, not I, helpful to me. No, I just sort of thought, well, you've misunderstood where I'm coming from a little bit. I don't feel sorry for myself in that way. No, I like hearing that when people yeah. do, you know, I love that. I just go, God, yeah. I'm not the only moron. So do I. And I'm attracted to those people. Yeah. But hey, man, you know, <laughs> you are there with your beautiful family it's so nice to see your daughter she looks charming and you are now uh four years sober do you think of yourself as someone who is sober or do you think well i just stopped drinking do you know what i mean well uh mostly i just don't think about it at all like i do all the things you're probably not supposed to do do you know what i never think or hadn't thought much about drinking because i had to you know i made the whole switch like can't spend any time thinking about that yeah that's over and it was only just recently, actually, I started listening to the Pogues. And um, and then I just started following, you know, old Shane and just reading everything I could and following his life. And, and you'd think most people would watch that and go, um, wow, that is sad. Like, look what alcohol's done to him. But I didn't. I just thought, man, he's gone the whole way. He's not given up. He's run with it. He's been the true Irish <laughs> imagine the amount of times that kind of crazy drunkness he's had on his own where he's seeing stuff and so i was romanticizing yeah a horrific thing yeah yeah so that made me go i could start drinking again you know once the family's all off on their own and they're i think i was really funny when i was dr- yeah so i wasn't thinking of all of that <laughs> this is the first time i've done that i haven't told my wife i had those thoughts no, be really no. cross. I didn't see very much of you in your in your boozy days. I mean, you know, we were all boozing a little bit when we used to hang out back in the, in the Ealing days. But were you sort of going off the rails? Did you have a wake up call at some moment and just think, "Oh shit, I've got to rein it in"? Yeah, I think it was around uh, twenty twelve and thirteen. I started drinking a lot. I think around twenty thirteen, I did a thing that I think happens to quite a lot of people is I started seeing some success on the horizon and it looked like there was some really good things about to happen and uh, if you don't treat the underneath kind of hatred of yourself you sabotage don't you you think you don't deserve that you're a fraud you know that kind of stuff and so I just drink more more and more yeah so it's a bit like that and then it just snowballed really quickly to about 2015 because I remember you were on Nevermind the Buzzcocks with Noel and you were all sort of dressed up like pirates and stuff. So were you... Yeah, that was still the sweet spot. Because there's always a time when you're drinking, you're just getting everything right. 
Because it isn't all bad, you know. Mm -hmm. There's like, if you look at old footage of, of The Who, for example, before Keith Moon got fat and really sad, there was a time when they were hammered all the time and they were quite funny and they still played really well live. So there was a time. And then all that sort of stuff, those TV things started to dry up real fast. <laughs> and at the time, it's like, just thinking, it's fucking politics, man. It's bullshit. At, at no point thinking maybe you were a little too sloppy when you went into this TV studios and uh -huh. everybody saw you. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that was pretty fun. Yeah. <laughs> I think I remember Stuart Goldsmith's podcast. I think you went on there and, and you were in Edinburgh. And you clearly were absolutely smashed. And I was thinking like, wow, he's gone for it. Because I'm always really, I've never got absolutely hammered doing a show, I don't think. But I've definitely had times where I've thought, oh, yeah, this will be funny. And it's, I'll be more relaxed and it'll be mm. good. And then I've seen it back and it wasn't good. Yeah. And also, I, I'm just aware that my, you know, I find it hard enough to get my brain moving at the best of times. I know that I have to save all that for afterwards. Yeah, I had forgotten how sort of uh, antisocial I really was. So when I was 14, 15, everyone says they're shy, but I had that kind of autistic kind of level of, you know, inside my own head kind of. So alcohol was the thing that made me go, oh, right. You could just get rid of that. Mm -hmm. it, it was a useful tool. Was the process of just quitting fairly straightforward or was that traumatic for you? Uh, well, I started doing, oh, you never know who listens to the podcast, but I, I had a phase where I did the, you know, the stuff that keeps you awake. Mm -hmm. You know, it was big in the 90s. Pro Plus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that stuff. The Pro Plus from Columbia. Yeah. But I never did it in that way, like, hey, I'm cool, let's do this at a party. I did it secretly and right. I used that to sober me up. You know, did you ever see Denzel Washington in that movie where he's a pilot? Yes. And he's absolutely bollocksed, but he's got to fly. And mm. the only thing that can give him is that. So I had a short period where I was doing all of that. Right. And so, you know, then the family says, right, we're out of here. This is, there's me thinking I'm keeping it from my family. But, you know, even if I was doing my business on my own away, you come home all hungover and tired. Anyway, so I realized I was going to lose all that. So I stopped everything all at once. And I know that they recommend that people don't do that, that mm -hmm. you slowly come off things. But it's mm -hmm. like, I, I'm not going to be allowed back ever if I do that kind of, they'll just think it's bullshit. So, yeah, so I stopped, bam, like that. And that was, yeah, that was horrible. That was about six months of like, well, you know, when you see uh, homeless guys and they're talking to themselves. Mm -hmm. So I was, I had had that much going on that I was kind of there. And then when you come off of it, you start talking to yourself and you hear it. Yeah. It's like lots of paranoia. And uh, why does the CIA always make it into the most mundane people's, you know, like <laughs> yeah. it makes it into loads of people's stories. You just think there's someone out there following you. Yeah, and, sure. And you got to put a name on it, so you just always pick the CIA. Mm. Did you spend a lot of time on YouTube investigating conspiracy theories in those days? No, not at all. I stayed well away from the yeah. internet. Well, that's probably just as well. I couldn't concentrate long enough. Yeah, but I think a lot of people who recover from things do do that, don't mm. they? That's They fill it with something. Yeah, sure. So. Um, I remember you saying after you 
stop boozing that you were very fond of ice cream, you'd become incredibly in Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, first I got super fat, and, and then I shaved off my beard and left sideburns. So I was fat with sideburns and long hair. <laughs> there's a guy there's a guy who's given up <laughs> and my wife I remember my wife saying you're going to look at photographs of yourself from this time and you're going to wish that you hadn't been like this and I'm going well, I, was, I was just being myself man and uh, yeah I look back and I think holy shit you'd really given up oh, man. but at least I was sober I mean that's the that's the part they never show people when they're giving up is hey look it's all good you give up, it's going to be great. Look at the transformation in Tony. In this photo, he's skinny. <laughs> sure, he looks a bit tired. Actually, my face looked a lot younger. Just fatter and younger and sadder. <laughs> <laughs> you look very well now, I must say. You look oh, really... I'm really happy to not be uh, gone down the Shane McGowan yeah, angle. I'm glad too. But I can see in him the thirst. Like, I get the thirst he's got. Yeah, yeah. He's being driven by all sorts of things it's the booze that's the trauma in the end you're drinking because you don't because you're drinking yeah that's when the layer the loop comes in yeah drinking because you're drinking when you talk about hanging out with people who are making all the right decisions and stuff well it seems to me mm. that you're you're doing a good job yeah you get intimidated by people just for being good people but then you you know <laughs> it's like it's like that's the ultimate in uh being a real childish just not strong person to be intimidated by really kind good people who are who make good decisions uh, you know yeah and there's a part of you just well yeah but, uh, but you know there's but, but there's no yeah but they're just really nice so you're faced with going oh god Oh, jeez. Yeah, but I bet you... Yeah, well, sorry, but I'm giving you a yeah, but. Um, yeah, <laughs> but I bet you that even those up-tempo positive people have moments where they're in a philosophical hole. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's always... Yeah. The big mistake humans always make, isn't it, is that no empathy for others. Like, everyone's got it better. Everyone's got it good. They don't know what it's like. But actually, everyone, everyone knows what it's like. Why if I be moving so slow... It's taking ages for pages to load oh, It was like this when the engineer came He said it was fake but now it's the same I'm taking a photo with my tea To put on my Instagram Some people like to see the tea of another man People be tripping out tea picket Yorkshire brewing a nice picket But I can't upload Cause my Wi-Fi's too slow Come on, come on Come on I had an experience Going to see you in Edinburgh When would it have been? 2014? 2013? Somewhere mm, Was there puppets in it? There was planets hanging up Ah, yeah. You were talking about um, James Gandolfini dying. Oh, yeah, and I had laser fingers. Lasers coming out of my fingers when I first went on stage, I think. Yes, that sounds right. And was an owl, owl puppet. Yeah, who's that? Is that Wolfie? Yeah, that's Wolfie barking at... Oh, see you, my love. Love you. Yeah, Storm's going on a walkabout. What kind of dog is Wolfie? He's a uh, German Shepherd. Wolfie! 
He's a big black German. He was the last drunk decision I made. So the paranoia actually had a phase before I'd quit everything. So there was a point where I'd sort of started drinking again. And I was like, I need a dog to protect me. But I didn't have enough money to get a fully trained German Shepherd that could actually protect me. So like an idiot, I got a puppy German. <laughs> this vulnerability I felt has suddenly gone up a bit because now I have this little creature I've got to look after too. Like such a fucking dumb decision. So now when I would go out, I would feel threatened personally and worried for the dogs. <laughs> and it made me, oh God, going to the woods is a nightmare. I was so scared. And you know, like so, <laughs> I was creating such a mess for me. Hey, Wolfie comes from that time. Yeah. <laughs> so yes 2013 is when james gandolfini died so Aww. he died in the summer of that year so i think i i would have seen you towards the end of august doing your edinburgh show and you were talking about how his death had affected you and because you were a big fan right yeah yeah because i remember over christmas this is long before kids when storm and i watched the whole box set together and uh we hadn't spoken to anybody else for probably a week the first thing we did when we went to a restaurant is uh, we hadn't heard each other speak for f quite a few days. And the first thing I ordered was, yeah, I'm going to have a steak and a scotch. <laughs> That's what I literally asked for. And then we just pissed ourselves. Anyway, I don't know why I brought that in. It's nothing to do with nothing. But yeah, couldn't couldn't talk like nothing else for a while there. Yeah. Oh, man. A friend of mine the other day was complaining that there's no good TV anymore, especially this year, because uh, it's all just repeats and... Bloody COVID. COVID times. And uh, it's all just lockdown TV and <laughs> Zoom shows. Yeah. And uh, People are so kind, like, trying to help comedians by putting on these Zoom shows. Like, loads of people, you yeah. know they're going to lose money, but they want to pay you some money. That's so uh -huh. sweet. You know, like, the Stand Comedy Club is finding ways to give you a little bit of money and there's just people like that and then you know that the comedy clubs are doing shit as well like what a yeah. crazy thing zoom and zoom they're tough to do so i i try and yeah. just get my face right up and then make fun of us doing zoom and you're trying to connect with people looking down the lens aren't you it's hard to do, isn't it? Because you've got to remember to look into the camera rather than yeah. just at the image of uh, the person you're talking to. And the minute you do that, you're being fake, yeah, which is exactly. stand-up's enemy. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? And so you have to address that going, I'm being fake now, so it's tougher for you to empathize. But now I'm not looking at you, but I'm being real. There's all of that going on. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the Stand Comedy Club, and that's where I saw you in Edinburgh. And I came in late for your show or at least with only a couple of minutes to spare before it started. And the only seat in the place, and it's a very small venue, was right in front of you. Oh, I remember that now. And when I say right in front of you, it's like, yes. you, it, there's barely even a stage. Yeah, there's there? like a six inches. Right. So you're over there, you're, you've got the microphone, the chairs are half a meter yeah. away from you. And, you know, they've packed as many chairs as they can. They are literally, you could reach out and touch the people in the front row. Just to the audience, you're saying, come on, there's still a couple of seats left here, right in front, right in front. <laughs> so I was looking around going, I can't go and sit there. And then I thought, yeah, fuck it, I'll just go and sit there. So I went and sat down because I thought, oh, it'd be funny, you know, and it'd be nice to see Tony. And I hadn't said hello to you yet. And I was looking forward to seeing you afterwards and having a drink and stuff. And then as soon as I sat down, 
I just thought, oh, no, this is a stupid thing to do, isn't it? <laughs> this is not what you're supposed to do. I <laughs> because... love that decision. <laughs> I just suddenly realized like, oh, you're not supposed to do this with stand-up comedy because he knows me, I know him, and now I'm going to completely throw him off. But it was too late to move by that time. I didn't yeah. know what to do. And I just spent the whole show trying to decide whether you were really fucked off with me or... Oh, no, that must have been painfully long. I should have made you feel relaxed about it right away. I should have given you some eye winks or or I should have made some fun of it. I couldn't have been in in too good of a flow because you got to say something about it. Yeah, I mean, I think you did. You, you acknowledged me and you did smile at me. But at the same time, you were in you were doing your show, even though it's not all scripted and you come in and out of bits. If you want to, you can say anything you want. It's not like a, a theater performance, but you were in a zone and mm. to suddenly start chatting to me would have taken you out of it. Well, some of my non jokes need so much selling that, <laughs> you know, you really need to concentrate and get every word right for it to go oh yeah okay that could work <laughs> yeah you gotta really dig deep for my material oh man it was it was such a um relief afterwards to find that you weren't furious with me oh god that's that's great i i actually don't mind where anyone sits now i used to be all like that you know well you know what it's like when you get older mm -hmm. you stop having all these little things like these worries it's uh, yeah all right yeah you're gonna go on first and so and so is gonna close great get to go home sooner like whereas in your younger you're like i gotta go on last and all of that kind of crap nothing better for me than doing a gig to i don't know go into aldershot and 70 people or whatever or going to newcastle playing to however many driving there on your own, listening to your podcasts, getting informed, learning about stuff. Maybe stop halfway and do a FaceTime with your family because you got to exercise your voice going, oh, okay, I feel connected, that's fine. Then you get up there, you do the, you meet up with the sound guy. And I guess I love that level of friendship as well. Someone you see once a year or twice tops where the, you don't have to get too close to how you really feel about anything i love that yeah i could do that all day long it's very it's like farmers i don't think i've ever heard my dad ever have a a deep conversation with anyone in my life <laughs> it feels i was telling the kids about uh when they were visiting canada I was going oh i remember me and dad we'd take haul grain into town 25 minutes there Hold the grain, 25 minutes back, and we never talked the whole time. <laughs> we just, and I was saying it like it was something I was proud of. And we kind of just, we just knew. And, but they all just stopped talking and look at each other and go, that's actually really sad, Dad. <laughs> oh, it's great. We didn't need to talk. We knew what each other was. And you start thinking, about, oh, yeah, maybe, yeah, okay, that is quite sad, actually. <laughs> I don't know. I'm conflicted. I, I, maybe you and I are, are similar in that way, too, because. My dad, he wasn't exactly taciturn, but yeah, there was no deep conversations right the way through up until the end. But don't you find like I'm like I'm way over the top with my two kids. I'm like trying to have moments yeah. all the time and yeah. I'm trying and they just find me annoying and clingy. I know it. Well, I've, I've overheard them during lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, dad probably wants. Oh, what's he want to talk about? 
Wait. This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code Buxton to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Dear stupid people of the future, <laughs> you guys are dicks. Welcome back, Podcats. Tony Law there. It was very nice to talk to Tony. Great to see him again, and I'm extremely grateful to him for making the time to Zoom with me. Oh, man, it's cold out here. It is pretty dark right now, and um, I'm going to get back. Check on Rosie. Play some Pikmin with my son. Have a large bowl of tea and upload this podcast check out the links in the description this week you'll find uh, links to Tony's Twitch TV show The Tone Zone and previous episodes of the show he did with Phil Nickel Uh, you can also find that video that I mentioned that I shot back in 2006 at my comedy evening with Tony taunting the people of the future It's really a great bit. And uh, there's a link as well to Tony's support page on Ko-fi, K-O-F-I. It's a bit like Patreon, I think. It's a web platform that enables people to take donations from people who enjoy their work uh, that help to cover the cost of whatever they happen to be producing. There is a link to that video series that I was watching about Synecdoche, New York. There's quite a few. I mean, there's, there seems to be a little cottage industry on YouTube of people analysing that film and suggesting their own theories for what it means and its philosophical implications. It's a bit of a rabbit hole, and I got sucked right down it last year, as you could probably tell from my conversation with Tony. I mean, I came out of it, but maybe don't investigate if you're feeling a bit bleak and uh, fragile. You will also find links in this week's description to Alexi Sale's new podcast and one of his videos of him riding around on his bike from Hampstead to King's Cross. I wanted to give it a mention because I'm a great admirer of Alexi Sale. His new podcast features... Alexi dissecting British politics 
telling stories from his long and illustrious career. And sometimes he has discussions with people that he's worked with, such as David Renwick and Andrew Marshall, who wrote Alexi Sales' Stuff. That was the sketch series he did back in the day, and a really amazing show. So much funny stuff in it. Um, and I believe Stuart Lee is going to be joining Alexi at some point in the near future on his podcast. Alexi also responds to listeners' emails every week. This is information that I got from Talal, Alexi's producer. You can also check out Alexi's YouTube channel, which is called simply Alexi Sale. And you can find the podcast there as well as his lockdown bike rides. Says Alexi's producer, Talal, we mount some GoPros onto his bike, mic him up and send him on his way around various London routes, planning to expand to other parts of the country in the future. Alexi tells stories and rambles on in a very zen, hypnotic way. It's fun. It is fun. I watched a few of them. I really recommend them. There's a link in the description to Alexi cycling from Hampstead to King's Cross while he chats away to himself. All right, that's it for this week, podcasts. Hope things are okay with you, especially if you're out there on the front line or working in a hospital or helping out in some other way with the COVID situation. We remain grateful to you all and hopeful that things are beginning to get easier for you out there, whether you're on the front line or not. A few thank yous before I say goodbye. Thanks very much indeed, as ever, to Seamus Murphy-Mitchell for his production support and to Owen Donovan as well. Thank you, Owen, for your help with this episode and to Annika Meissen for additional editing. The artwork for this podcast is by Helen Green. Thanks very much indeed to all the hard-working folks at Acast. Thanks most of all to you for listening and continuing to be encouraging. Do you want to hear some ice cracking? And then we'll have a hug. Yeah, you're welcome. Hug, come on. Hey. All right, mate. Look after yourself. I'll let you know how Rosie's getting on next week. Until then... Take great care. And uh, hey, for what it's worth, I, well, I love you. Bye!